Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to Political Beats, presentation of National Review, where we talk with people who are working in, commenting on, uh, analyzing politics about, well, not politics at all, but about music and specifically their favorite bands and why they love them and why perhaps you should too. You can subscribe to our feed, new episodes, uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, usually on Monday mornings, or at nationalreview.com. Uh, click on podcasts right near the top on the pull-down menu, and you find all of our old episodes there too. As you listen and enjoy, please leave reviews as well. We love to see and read those reviews. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And my co-host, as always, standing by, it's Jeff Blair. Hey, Scott, how are you? How you doing? I am well. Uh, I, I will say, uh, tough week. We do have the baseball playoffs to kind of hoist us up. So a little little give and take, I think, this week. Go Nats! <laughs> I mentioned Jeff is a huge Nationals fan, and somehow his neighbors on the near, uh, near north side of Chicago allow him to live, uh, being a Nationals fan in Cubs country. It's nice I of them. My, I keep my shame hidden. <laughs> uh, so we, uh, we welcome in our guest today on Political Beats. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. His handle at Baseball Crank. He's a lawyer, contributing columnist at National Review. In fact, our first National Review guest. So you can always hang your head on that, Dan. Uh, a Mets fan. They are not in the playoffs. I'm a White Sox fan. We are not in the playoffs either. So, And a former baseball blogger, too, thus the Twitter handle. He is Dan McLaughlin. Dan, how are you? All right. It's, uh, it has indeed been a very sad week. Uh, and, and, and that brings us to our topic today. Uh, indeed. And before we get to to the band, which people might already know, uh, we do want to ask you, though, about your uh, political beat, your political job being a contributing columnist at National Review. What is a contributing columnist and how did you get involved in the world of politics from, from being a baseball blogger? Yeah, well, I am a uh, I'm a lawyer uh, by my day job, uh, as I have been since uh, 1996. Um there's sort of a long, convoluted road to political writing. I started out doing a, uh, uh, a weekly uh, politics column, essentially, in uh, my college newspaper, uh, and our sports columnist for the paper at the time was Bill Simmons, uh, who, of course, would go on to uh, much bigger and better things later on. Uh, and I actually started writing for Bill's uh, you know, having sort of kept in touch through mutual friends, started writing for Bill's baseball, uh, Bill's sports website, uh, a weekly baseball column, mm-hmm. uh, back in 2000. This was when Bill was still uh, the Boston sports guy, writing for a little AOL-based website <laughs> up there before he went to ESPN. Uh, and then, you know, terrorists blew up our office in 2001. I got back into writing about politics. Started. Uh, doing politics and baseball on my blog in 2002 um, and gradually moved on to uh, uh, writing uh, at Red State uh, starting in 2004 uh, and among the various other outlets uh, along the way and, and you know, started in at uh, National Review at the beginning of uh, 2016 and have been writing uh, exclusively for NR since uh, about June of 2016. And uh, Dan McLaughlin, his uh, uh, his his band, his his artist, is one that I uh, I feel somewhat strange giving a, a a long intro to, given all that's happened. But songwriter, guitarist, band leader, four decades in rock and roll, eighty million plus albums sold, 
Uh, just two top ten hits. So it's, it seems like he had far more than that based on how many you know. He truly is one of the great American rock and rollers of all time. And he has passed away, as you very well might know. He is Tom Petty and his band, of course, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And we turn the floor back to you, Dan, to tell us a bit about how you got into Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and, and, and what that music means to you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, let me give you just a very brief uh, background of my own musical background. It, you know, I, I was born in 1971. My parents were uh, not rock and roll people. They were from the pre-rock and roll era. So I grew up on, you know, uh, basically 1940s music uh, until I was about 10, and my older brother was 14 and joined the Columbia Record Company uh, and uh, started getting us into, you know, myself and my siblings into rock, really starting with the Beatles, um, and, you know, gradually got into more contemporary uh, or current at the time artists like Billy Joel and Asia, uh, and eventually Springsteen once, uh, you know, once once I heard The River. Um, the first record that I ever bought uh, was an LP of uh, Paul McCartney's Tug of War mm. back in 1982. Um but I was a, so, you know, I, I listen to a fair amount of hard rock, but uh, I think I'm still at bottom a, a pop rock guy. And Tom Petty is a guy who was throughout his career, um, you know, never strayed far from being a pop rock kind of rocker, even though, you know, his, his music was in so many ways meat and potatoes rock and roll. Uh, he always had... Um, you know, he he didn't he didn't produce the kind of uh, buried in the mix vocals and uh, bizarre song structures and other things that that you know signify artists who have purposely turned their back on the kind of pop musicality that that so much of rock and roll had in mm-hmm. the '60s when he was young. Um, so, what actually introduced me to Petty for the first time? really, um, I mean, I'm sure I had heard some of his songs before then, was what I think introduced a fair number of people to Petty in the mid-'80s, which was his very bizarre video (laughs) uh, for Don't Come Around Here No More, Mm -hmm. which is in many ways the most (laughs) different Tom Petty song that Tom Petty ever did, Uh, even though the you know, the, the, the outro of the song is very much standard heartbreakers rock and roll. Uh, the song has a lot of, you know, sitars and everything, and, and uh, the video was an Alice in Wonderland theme and very, very uh, psychedelic, as really anything that, that touches Alice in Wonderland is inevitably going to be psychedelic. And the, the video actually stirred up a fair amount of controversy at the time uh, because it was weird and creepy and it seemed like everybody was on drugs and they turned the girl into a cake and ate her at the end. Yeah, so, they eat her. It's really, really weird. It really is. It really is weird. Um, the and, top hat is the weirdest part of all. That's a giant top hat. Yeah, and, and Petty, you know, in, in, in one, of the, one of the tragedies of Petty's career was that he lost his collection of top hats when his house burned down. Um 
but but you know, so that really that got me into knowing who Tom Petty was and having a good sense of what his music was. But I, I think I really got into Petty in a serious way um, with Full Moon Fever uh, in 1989. Really, one of the greatest. Uh, you know, just one of those perfect albums, the perfect marriage of, you know, the right guy at the right time with the right collection of songs, and each one flows into the next. And uh, there are plenty of great artists who have produced tons of great music but never had one of those perfect albums. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Full Moon Fever is really one of those perfect albums, you know, like Back in Black uh, or Born in the USA, you know, or Boston's debut album. Uh, in some cases, they may not even be the band's best album, but but an album like that that just you just put it on and you listen to the whole thing, and 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 there's not a single moment that feels out of place. Uh, and that was really it. I've only seen Petty live once, uh, February seventh, nineteen ninety, uh, on the the tour that followed Full Moon Fever's release uh, at the Worcester Centrum. Uh, I was in college at the time. I actually had wanted to see him this summer, uh, but got around a little too late to getting tickets, and the the shows that he did at Forest Hills were sold out. Um, so I missed out on that, but I'm I'm glad I did see him once. Uh, and you know, it, it, the other thing about Petty that's really amazing from the beginning to end of his career is his consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he was like, you know, the Warren Spahn of rock and rollers, uh, <laughs> a guy who just, he just, uh, he, he arrived fully formed. Mm-hmm. He sounded like, you know, if you know anything about Tom Petty's music, the very first, you know, from the very first notes of his first album, he sounded like Tom Petty all the way to, if you go up and look up on YouTube, clips from the Hollywood Bowl show uh, last week that closed his tour. Um, you know, and he, he closed out the show with American Girl, uh, and it was it was Tom Petty. It was the same Tom Petty. You know, one of, the, one of the things I cite as an example of that, if you've listened to Petty's live anthology released in 2009. Um, yes. Which was even a revelation to me because, I, you know, I, I was a big fan by that point of a lot of Petty's music. But I didn't own all of his albums, so there were still, you know, tracks that I didn't know as well, or things that I'd kind of, you know, not paid as close attention to. In addition to the fact that there's a bunch of covers on there and, and whatnot. But um, if you listen to most artists and a collection of their live work over the years, you can you can kind of pick out when things were recorded. Uh, you know, the, the the artist's voice changes, maybe the band changes its tempo or its lineup, um, and you know, the songs on the live anthology, the earliest ones I think were recorded around 1980, the latest around 06 or 07. Uh, so it's it's almost a three-decade period, and it could be a recording of one show. Mm-hmm. Petty and the band sound exactly the same from one track to the next. Uh, and, and that's really remarkable. I have to say, I have an amusingly similar experience with Tom Petty uh, as Dan does, which is which is ironic because I'm, I'm a slightly younger generation. He's born in 71 and I was born in 80. And again, what was the first time Tom Petty busted into my consciousness? Well, it was with Don't Come Around Here No More. It's that dang video. That thing just got, probably got everybody's eyeballs uh, when, it, when it came out. It, it haunted us all. Um, <laughs> the other thing is full moon fever again this is the album one of the first cds i think i can remember uh you know pushing my dad to buy 
because uh, you know we had seen uh, it was I won't back down. It wasn't free falling. It was I won't back down. Was the one that we saw mm-hmm. on uh, I think it was VH1 actually. We we're like, hey, we got to go get that. So we went and I believe we got it from the library or something like that. Um, That's how I got all my music when I was growing up. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And, and at one point he announces, "Hello, CD listeners." Yeah. <laughs> yes, he does. He does. Um, and then by the time the Greatest Hits album came out, which is, I think, 93, yep. 94, uh, I just remember it just being taken as an absolute given that oh, this guy is one of the canonical members of the rock music world. It was so obvious when all those songs were stacked up back to back to back that this is one of the major talents of rock and roll. And then, of course, that also had another Greatest Hit on it. It was thrown in as an extra track, which we'll get to. Um, it was... At that point where I decided, okay, I'm going to see if I can investigate this guy more, and he had just that conveniently come out with a box set. Box set to this day I would still recommend people go get. It's called Playback. Six CDs. Uh, he insisted that that be sold for uh, $35 to $40, which was an amazing value back then and is still a pretty darn good value today. Um, and then from that point on I went back and I actually got all of the records, and I was stunned at the consistency of this guy it's not even just the singles the hit tracks it's the album tracks i there are some records of his that i think are weaker than others and we'll get to that but you start with 1976's tom petty and the heartbreakers and you can go all the way from there up to i would say she's the one 96 is is the last one that i think is you know truly top level he's got a lot of great songs after that on uh, echo and the last dj and, and highway companion and some other stuff but uh, you've got such an amazing track record of consistency. And the interesting thing about him is that, yeah, he would even describe himself as a meat and potatoes rocker. But he's more than just that. He's, he's crafty enough to throw his quirks and his interesting you know, twists and turns into the same style as all of the rest of his music. And, and, and that basic you know, hit single or you know, straight-ahead rock and roll approach, so that on a lot of these albums you find some interesting, you know, side alleys and you know, roads not taken and, and uh, interesting, you know, left turns. But he never lets it overtake the concept, the basic concept of what he wants to do. And it's because of that that he's timeless. There are so few artists that basically everyone of every generation agrees on. Whether you were born in the '50s. You were born in the 80s, or you were born in the 2000s. You're okay with Tom Petty. Yep. You're like, yeah, it's pretty good stuff. Everybody likes him so much. And there is, I, you find people who say, like, I really hate Bruce Springsteen. He's so pretentious. <laughs> I, I really hate Bob Dylan. I can't stand his voice. He doesn't ha- know how to sing. People have objections to almost every other classic act out there, but everybody loves Tom Petty. I mean, and that is an amazing accomplishment. I'm going to piggyback on that real quick, and that is, um, I had similar thoughts, and and I I, I compare Petty a bit to uh, CCR in that a lot of CCRs too, and CCR spans generations, and everyone's got Chronicle, and everyone knows the 20 tracks, and everyone knows the words, and it spans again generations. But the, a lot of those songs just seem like they've always existed. Uh, Proud Mary, um, it, it just seems it's always been there, but. You know, John Fogarty had to actually write it and CCR had to record it. And a lot of Petty's songs, um, you know, American Girl and Refugee, it, they had this quality to them. Like they've always been around. Um, but Petty had to write them and the Heartbreakers had to record them and they came from somewhere. And that somewhere was like this 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 melding of 
uh, you know, 60s era birds and a little Rolling Stones and, you know, a little bit southern of Southern rock, right, too. A little southern. Very Leonard Skinner kind of a thing. He's from Florida. There. And so a little bit of the South pouring in there, too, and, and coming together in this, like, tuneful jangle, but with this swagger, this, this, this kind of sly swagger to it. And that was the petty sound. And that was the petty sound from basically day one, uh, you know, the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers debut. A um, couple of big songs. Breakdown uh, was it was the single. It's alright if you love. It's alright if you don't. I'm not afraid of you running away, honey. I get the feeling you owe. American Girl, which everyone knows now, didn't even chart when it was released off of the of the first album. But there is so much of. Tom Petty, as Dan mentioned earlier, fully formed on really those first two albums before they got a top-flight producer uh, to, to join them. But Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and, and you're going to get it, those first two albums, Tom Petty stuff was fully formed and ready to rock. Yeah, and, and one of the things that, you know, when you, when you I guess if we we're sort of segueing into the first album, um, you know, again, two of my other absolute favorite artists that I've, I've over the years, Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, and if you if you pull off their first album or two, you can hear them learning their craft. You can hear the Dylan influence, right? In because they're both releasing albums in the early '70s, and you can sort of see them over their first couple albums tearing back that excess wordiness of trying to sound like Bob Dylan, right? And and Petty never has any of that, right? It, Petty songs are tight from the beginning. Petty songs are tight even when he co-writes with Bob Dylan himself. Uh, and, you know, and that's that's pretty amazing. But but there's no there's no learning process there. That clearly it had all, as with CCR, I guess a lot of it had been done before he had a record contract. Actually, and, and you know the story behind that is pretty interesting because there was a learning process for him, although it's one that most people aren't really aware of. He came out to Los Angeles uh, as the leader of a different band. It was called Mud Crutch. And they had a record contract, and they started to record. This is with Shelter Records, which is the uh, the, the label that uh, they signed with and that released their first few albums. And they started recording songs, and it was a much more a bit more countrified, a bit more Leonard Skinnerty. Um, and the label just didn't like it. Said, well, "This isn't working. You guys can't really decide who you want to be. You got all these different songwriters in the band, and we're focusing on too many different divergent voices." And they broke up the band. But they kept Petty because he was tethered to a songwriting contract with that label as well and basically said, okay, why don't you just make an act as a solo act? You're going to be a – you're not a member of Mud Crutch anymore. You're just Tom Petty. And so he started to do that with some studio professionals, but then he said to himself, you know, I really want to be in a band. That's just the way the way my sort of – my rock ethos has always been arrayed. And so what he did is he got a couple of members from Mud Crutch. He brought them back into the fold. And, of course, they're the two probably most important members of the Heartbreakers, Ben Montench, who was the keyboardist, and um, Mike Campbell, mm -hmm. who is Petty's lead guitarist. And we, I want to talk about this later. An excellent songwriter in his own right. He was responsible for a lot of the band's greatest hits. And then he found the other guys, Stan Lynch, who was their drummer. Uh, Ron Blair was the bassist, then later on he left, and then Howie Epstein joined. And he put together that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers record in 1976, but he had been working at it since 1971-72. So he had a four-year apprenticeship that he was almost, in a way, lucky enough to not have 
made public until much later. You know, some of the outtakes are now found on like box sets and compilations and things like that. And so we we can hear this prehistory. But yeah, he labored in obscurity, and by the time he finally got that crack with the Heartbreakers and, and created that band. He knew exactly what it was he wanted to do. And it shows through on that record, which, by the way, you know, you're going to consistently hear us say this, that, you know, all these records are great. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the debut album is is pretty much as good as anything he ever released. All right. The Breakdown, which is, uh, you know, his first major hit. You got American Girl. But you got a lot of other songs on that record that people don't know as well that are still great. There's Hometown Blues. There's this really great sort of slower number called The Wild One Forever Mm -hmm. that I was talking about the other day. It's like unless you're a confirmed fan of, you know, Petty and you've bought the records, you've never heard this song. Please go back and listen to it. That was their first. Uh, they had their first hit single was not in America. It was in Great Britain, and that was anything that's rock and roll. Another great rock song on that record that was co-written with uh, with Mike Campbell. And then there's this one that I really like uh, called "Stranger yes, in the Night." I love that song, <laughs> and I like it because it's such a blatant. <laughs> plagiaristic ripoff the only time you could ever say to tom petty is like you totally stole that song because it is 100 percent steelers wheels stuck in the middle with you just rewritten the chord changes the melody the the way the phrasing on the words goes everything about it is stuck in the middle of you just you know with some slightly different lyrics and you know a few tweaks here and there and he got away with it you know it's just one of those funny things that he's been playing that they play that song for years and uh i don't really know if i've ever seen anyone else point out how much it's exactly like the other song Uh, political Beats, it's Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Dan McLaughlin at Baseball Crank. We're talking Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on this episode. Uh, yeah, Stranger to the Night, I love. Wild One Forever is great. Some of these tunes he just started playing again live in like the past six, seven years. Uh, and uh-huh. Wild One Forever is one of those. Um, and then I kind of group You're Gonna Get It in with album one. The, the very consistent uh, with the first album in terms of the music and, and the themes. I think You're Gonna Get It is a slight come down in quality you know the two songs that everyone knows off that album i need to know uh which is uh petty said he was trying for a wilson pickett kind of sound on it and uh, and listen to her heart which is apparently a true story or at least some liberties taken about a party at ike turner's house and my favorite story about uh listen to her heart you know the first line you know uh thinks you're going to take her away with your money and your cocaine i guess the record execs freak because you don't mention cocaine in pop songs. And they said, Tom, would you please change this lyric? Would you, would you change it to something else? Uh, how about champagne? champagne? They yep. to change it how to. about champagne? And Petty said, I'm not going to do that. Why would, a, why would a woman leave a guy for champagne? It's only like four bucks. Uh, so, <laughs> so cocaine stayed, uh, and perhaps it hurt its uh, chart positioning, but it, it's still a very solid song. You're going to get it, those two tracks, and maybe the, the opener when the time comes and the closer, Baby's a Rock and Roller, but a uh, slight step down from the first album, which again, as Jeff mentioned, is pretty much right near the top quality petty that he produced in his career. Yeah, and, and Breakdown, I think if you look at the fact that Breakdown was kind of his first real hit, um, you know, it, it, it definitely is not as poppy as American Girl, uh, but it 
one thing it does do a very good job of is it introduces the weirdness of Tom Petty's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it really kind of showcases that, that quirky quirkiness uh, and very individual, I mean, I guess individual, except when he was doing a Roger McGuinn imitation by, <laughs> just by singing. Um, but, but, you know, that's one thing that it, it did, really did do is showcase from the very start that he had this, this unique sound uh, that didn't really sound like other people who were, particularly other people who were on the radio in the late 70s. He slurs almost all of the words in some of his, his like hit songs. It's all right if you love me. It's all right if you don't. It's sort of you can make out what he's saying, but it's it's the combination of the southern drawl and the attitude. He gives a sense that it's rock and roll. He doesn't care exactly. It, it comes off as kind of cockiness, but maybe also sort of forced bravado. Gives a sense of vulnerability to a lot of what he says and sings. That it's you know again that's part of the magic of the whole band approach. Speaking of uniqueness, I just have to point this out because you guys mentioned when you know you first saw uh, the video for uh, "Don't Come Around Here No More." I remember seeing a bunch of live stuff off Peck Up the Plantation on MTV around that time, and I just have to say that my initial reaction to Tom Petty was unique voice and of course B, that is one ugly guy. I mean I, that it just. He's he's not a conventionally handsome guy, right? Which works in rock and roll, but that always stuck out he to me. He always looks vag- vaguely skeletal, <laughs> yes. you know, <laughs> about the jawline or something. Like that. Absolutely. Yeah, and 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 that too was in one in some ways a benefit to him in the fact that he came out in the seventies when mm-hmm. um, radio was dominant and most rock and rollers just looked like a big indistinguishable pile of hair. <laughs> right. Um, you know, by, by the way, I want to say this because you're going to get it as an album that gets skipped over a lot. Um, it has the two songs that Scott pointed out. I think this is Petty's most underrated album, and I think it's very close to being his best album, which is not a opinion that I think a lot of Tom Petty fans hold. And I know Petty himself always preferred the first one, so you're going to get it. I think it's great. I think that the title track is a really interesting departure from the sort of classic sound that you know from Petty. I think Hurt is an amazing song that never got played, never got any attention paid to it. Much ain't enough. No second thoughts. There really, in my opinion, is not one single bad track on this record. And what I like the most about it, and this is an interesting thing to say, is that it's only 29 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Ten tracks, 29 minutes. Not a single song is more than three and a half minutes. Everything says what it needs to say, gets the job done, and then just gets out of dodge. It's so brief. It's so brisk, and it's it's. The best kind of album where every track has something to offer and none of them ever linger too long uh, so that you can get bored of what they're doing. So it's a really cohesive record. Um, Again, this is the one that falls between the slats in the Petty discography, especially because of what comes next. I recommend that anybody listening to this go back and give it a shot. And what comes next is, um, I would say, his best album, which is Damn the Torpedoes. It's in my uh, my Twitter uh, background uh, on the stack of vinyl. Damn the Torpedoes is in that collection. Uh, new producer, Jimmy Iovine, comes in, and 
so, well, I mean, all these songs, everyone knows Refugee, Don't Do Me Like That, which he nearly gave to the Jay Giles band before recording it himself. Uh, Even the Losers. Uh, there was no chorus when they went to record Even the Losers. He had ev- Petty had everything done with that song, but no chorus. And they said, let's run through it. He, he claims he had no idea what was going to come out of his mouth when they hit the chorus. It worked out well. Uh, Here Comes My Girl, huge hit on the album as well. Uh, album tracks are solid though too. Shadow of a Doubt, Complex Kid, one of my favorite Petty tracks. But girl, Petty just can't nail down, uh, can't get to her. Uh, don't do me like that. I heard in the car a couple of weeks ago before, of course, all this came up. Uh, all this being Petty's death, and I'm listening to Don't Do Me Like That, and there is in the final 15 seconds of that song, Mike Campbell plays this. Uh, this this uh, this this chord chord progression that I don't think is anywhere else in that song, and I went back and listened to it a few times this week, and I still think that's true. It's like this this the final fifteen seconds. There's a whole other song bursting to get out of "Don't Do Me Like That" almost through this this chord progression that Campbell comes up with, and it just fades away, and that's it. Uh, but that's a great great song, and uh, and, and "Damn the Torpedoes" uh, I I think is his best album. Damn the Torpedoes is a great album, and you mentioned Mike Campbell, and so I wanted to take this time to make this point, is that everybody thinks about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as you know Tom Petty's band, which is true, because Petty is the front man and he writes most of the songs. What can never, ever be understated, though, or uh, underemphasized, is how important Mike Campbell is to the band and is to those albums. Mike Campbell actually wrote the music for a lot of Tom Petty's greatest hits, and a lot of people don't realize this. Refugee and Here Comes My Girl, both off of Damn Torpedoes, those are Mike Campbell songs. Petty wrote the lyrics to them, but they, the band even jokes that Here Comes My Girl, they literally just basically took the demo that <laughs> Campbell brought in, didn't change a thing, used the exact music that it was already arranged as, and then Petty just made up a lyric that goes over. And by the way, I love Tom Petty singing on Here Comes My Girl. He, he goes through the entire range from just <laughs> you know, a speaking drawl to like the chicken squawk. That's the way I describe the Petty yowl. He's you know, either like a squawking chicken or maybe yeah. like a really angry stray cat in the alley. You know, going, ah! you know, I love it. And then he goes to the Birdsian thing in the chorus with Stan Lynch harmonizing with him. But Mike Campbell wrote so many other good songs. Mike Campbell wrote The Boys of Summer by Don Henley. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that until I looked it up just the other day. Um, he wrote the music to that. It was actually Don Henley just wrote the lyrics. And I think Such Petty a... passed on that song, too. I think yes, Campbell yes, offered him did. first. Yeah, yeah and Campbell... you, could picture, you could picture that, you know, Changing nothing but replacing Henley's vocal with Petty's and drop it in the middle of a Tom Petty album and it would sound just the same. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Another Mike Campbell song, which I, thankfully we do have a version where it's just Petty singing mm-hmm. to the backing track. And guess what? It sounds like a Heartbreaker song <laughs> because it was a Heartbreaker song. And, and Damn the Torpedoes is also where you see um, some progress because Campbell's, the Campbell tracks tended in the early al- earliest albums to be the most kind of sort of frenetically upbeat and obviously we don't see that with uh, refugee or here comes my girl i always thought you know sort of by the time i got to you know 1990 or so i always thought of refugee as petty signature song mm-hmm. uh and maybe people think of you know i mean it's one of the signs of having a lot of hits that different people identify you with a different song um but that is just it is just such a great song um but you know, when you're talking about this album, do not skip over uh, the side closers on each side, Century City, and in particular, Louisiana Rain, which yeah. closes out the album. What a great song. What a great song. And they, the live version of it on 
uh, on the anthology is even better. Um, and it's just it's just so evocative and, and just this wonderful kind of drawling uh, ballad. Um, and and it's, it's really, really one of his very best songs. That's another really old one. I mean, yes. Louisiana Rain dates all the way back to the Mud Crutch days, and so does Don't Do Me Like That, which was another one from like 1973, and it was almost on the discard pile. Like they played a few versions of it just to get the band warmed up during the damn torpedo session, and they didn't really think it was worth much until like the second engineer came in near the end of the session and says, "Hey, hey, hey! I know I'm not supposed to say this because it's not my place, but you guys, come on, you got to do that. Don't don't do me like that song. That's really good." And uh, then they put it up and they listened to a playback and they're like, you know, this really is really good. And it was their first big hit because they were, they were about to discard one of their most iconic songs. Um, they needed somebody else to point out what a gem they had in it. Yeah, and that went to, that went to number four on the, uh, the top 40 chart. So that was, that, was, that was when they started to break out from, you know, having hits on rock radio to having hits on pop radio. And the other thing is, and I don't want to make too much about this, but this is during the era where he was really at war with his record label. Mm-hmm. The, the label he had signed to had said folded because of financial problems. had gotten bought up by, I think, MCA. Yep. And, you know, Petty was, like, pissed at that. You know, he's, he was, a, you know, as he liked to call himself, he's a stubborn redneck. Um, so he was like, I don't want to go sign for these faceless corporate, you know, bloodsuckers. <laughs> and uh, he very nearly didn't even release the album. I think he got to the point where he was having, like, his bandmates travel around with the with the tapes, the actual studio tapes, the reel-to-reels, like, in their trunk so yep. that he could go in front of a judge and swear without lying that he wasn't sure where the tapes were <laughs> at any one time. And, you know, going through all of this is... This massive war with your record label, uh, which you know you would think would lead to an absolute disaster of an album, and then have the result be your greatest hit, and you know, in a lot of people's estimate, the greatest album Tom Petty ever did, is one hell of a turnaround. And then you know, this is the one that made Petty an international superstar, and with great reason. Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed, new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at NationalReview.com. Please listen. Leave reviews as well. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Dan McLaughlin with us today at Baseball Crank on Twitter, contributing columnist at National Review. We talk Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Jeff mentioned the war with record labels. Uh, it continued with the next album, Hard Promises, also delayed and nearly not released for a long time because record company wanted to add a buck to the price of the uh, album. Petty said, I'm not going to give it to you or I'm going to call it the 898 album. So you have to charge 898 for it. Eventually, Petty wins and puts out what I think is an overlooked album in, in Petty's collection. And I, I have to ta- uh, take time to talk about The Waiting, because in trying to rank top, Tom Petty's top five, top 12 songs, everybody's going to have different different songs in different orders. It's just the way of Tom Petty's career. So many great songs, and each one of, us, each one of them sort of speaks to each of us differently. The Waiting, for me, is peak Petty, especially from the start of the second verse 
all the way through uh, the bridge and and into uh, Mike Campbell's guitar solo. It is everything that Petty should be. There's the the twelve string birds esque guitars. There's the shout and response just before the the chorus. Stan Lynch, who is a terrific terrific drummer, is right in the pocket the whole song. Uh, and he's uh, adding some harmony vocals there, which he did a lot before Howie Epstein got there. Mike Campbell's solo is fantastic. There's a little flourish just just after the chorus. The second uh, verse, Petty is so good in his songs, and uh, Demo Torpedo said this too, with fitting in the, the phrases he wants in whatever place he wants, right? And the words just kind of, kind of go where he wants them to be. Uh, and to me, the waiting... Again, from the start of the second verse all the way through Campbell's solo, that is that is the most perfect Tom Petty moment of his career. The album is great too. Something big is a non-single track. Um, great story about yes. a guy who meets a stranger, takes uh, up to the hotel. The next morning, the cleaning people get there. He's in bed, maybe dead. We don't know. Um, and they say, "Well, it's just someone else up to something big." Great, great tune. Uh, "Woman in Love" was one of the other singles. "The Criminal Kind" is a, is a great track. Um, "Hard Promises" is just a little overlooked coming after "Damn the Torpedoes," but it's fantastic. I would say Hard Promises is the other majorly underrated album of Petty's career. Uh, it's probably the other one that I would rate as at or near his best. You stole what I was going to say about something big because everybody knows The Waiting, and uh, that's obviously the one big single from the album. Uh, Woman in Love was supposed to be the second single. Uh, kind of got pipped because uh, Stevie Nicks' label yes. released Stop Dragging My Heart Around, which is – Tom Petty and all but name they they duet on the records so it was sort of taken by people to be the next Tom Petty single but the ones that are really great on that record again this is an album that has no bad songs are something big I love Insider which is a duet with Stevie Nicks you can still change your mind which is the the the, the, the album concluder and then the one that I also think is great and very tellingly this is the one that they chose to begin the entire live anthology with it's a song called Night Watchman mm-hmm. all right it says, I'm the night watchman. I make the rounds. I got to keep my nose to the ground. You know, but, you know, I got potential. This isn't a job for a guy like me. You know, I, I, I could be just what you need. It's a standard kind of a petty protagonist. Like, yeah, I, I, I work this, this kind of loser job. You know, I don't really feel like I'm going anywhere. But, man, I got big dreams and I can make something out of my life. And it's all set to this really crackling backing track. Um, Again, the straight-ahead rock and roll thing, and a big tell to me, again, is that it's another co-write with Mike Campbell. Uh, I think he did most of the music on it. There's nothing on Hard Promises that is bad. There's maybe one song that I'm a little iffy about, which is The Criminal Kind. Uh, it's kind of like you know, sort of a second, dream, second uh, trip to the well of something big that doesn't work nearly as well as the first time. But you know, I didn't even mention A Thing About You, which is, could have been a pop hit in another universe and should have been, but it was never even released as a single. 
everything about Hard Promises is great. And again, it's one of those albums that you probably don't know. You know the waiting, especially if you like The Simpsons, and you saw the great episode <laughs> where Homer wants to buy a gun, but he has a, a, a like a three day waiting period. Yep. So he sits out on his lawn and he watches like all the you know like all the like targets and birds fly by as he wishes he had a gun to shoot at Ned Flanders on his riding lawnmower. <laughs> it's just a really great moment that uses Tom Petty's The Waiting is the Hardest Part as its background lyric, and it's hilarious. And I think that's the way a lot of people actually know this album, but it should be known for so much more than that. And and that, that little glimmer of hope in Night Watchmen, you know, it's it's um, it's in a sense in the, the roots rock world, it's kind of what distinguishes him a little bit from from Springsteen or Seeger, right? Because, you know, or, 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 or Mellencamp. I mean, Seeger, for example, is usually looking backwards, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and Bruce is, you know, Bruce is always painting on this bold palette of, you know, great hope and great tragedy. You know, I have hope, but it's a hopeless world, so I'm, I'm never going to get there. And petty, yeah. so, petty skies are always kind of like, you know what, I can do a little better than this, you know? And, and, and it's that kind of sly hopefulness that, that fits with his persona. Feels more realistic too. You know, like sometimes the problem I have with Bruce is that it's especially when you get to the eighties, I guess when you know, he goes full uh, you know, you know, John Landau and uh, you know, you know, John Steinbeck for that matter. And his protagonists seem relentlessly defeated, uh, unless you're right, unless they're like, you know, joyously uplifted in some sort of transporting uh, reverie. Uh, and Tom Petty, when he writes about character sketches, they seem like people you know. They don't seem like, you know, these, you know, very deftly written character, you know, uh, John Dos Passos figures. They seem like the guy you know who works down at the at the local car shop, you know, the mechanic who does your uh, changes your transmission. They don't feel fake to me. They don't feel mannered in a way that sometimes I felt that Springsteen stuff, particularly as the 80s wore on, could end up sounding like. Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers we talk about with Dan McLaughlin from uh, National Review, where he is a contributing columnist. And at Baseball Crank is his handle on Twitter. Uh, gentlemen, we move on to Long After Dark. It's, it, uh, it's kind of a holding pattern album, I think is how I'd describe it. Before things got a little weird with Southern accents uh, and, and continuing the, the sound of the past two albums with Jimmy Iovine, his last album that he would produce, you got lucky is the single, and it's it's a, a a great video. You know, Petty is a guy that you know his videos do connect to the music. Um, Wasn't it like a Mad Max? Thing it was. It was a like Mad that? Max post apocalyptic thing. Petty and the band come into this uh, this little uh, like like tent filled with uh, recording equipment and video games, and Mike Campbell picks up the guitar and rips off the solo. Um, and it's a neat video. You Got Lucky uh, is, is actually one of my favorite Petty tunes. Ben Montench didn't want to play it because it's, it's synthesizers, these synth stabs, and he didn't really want to play it, and he did. worked out because it, it worked into a hit. You know, other than the solo, there's not a lot of Mike Campbell here, and I think that actually speaks to one of his great traits, which is Campbell rarely overplays. He rarely overplays or tries to squeeze things in where they don't belong. Um, and, and you got lucky. I think is a, a, another example of that. Where you know, there's there's a fill here, there's a little lick there, but uh, he lets the song kind of speak for itself. Uh, Change of heart was another single from the album. Big riffs, big drums. Uh, Petty said he was trying to write something like ELO's "Do Ya." Uh, he would have the chance later, I guess, with working with Jeff Lynne later on. You know, the album tracks are kind of perfunctory. I don't know if anything really stands out here. Straight into darkness is a, straight is into a really, darkness is yep, the one. Yeah, that's a really good song. 
Um, but this, you know, to me, it just it's a little holding pattern. It's it's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but 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 there was more to come. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you basically you basically got my uh, view on the album there. It, it, there's again, the, don't he didn't make a bad album during this period. It's sort of the end of that five album run, where I feel like they're all of a piece. Damn the Torpedoes stands out a little bit more, but everything from the self-titled debut to Long After Dark feels like it's of a grouping. And this is the last one. It's a bit of a dip, but again, there's nothing bad on it. It's only uh, the album tracks. It's Straight in the Darkness is the only one that really jumps out. At The other thing that obviously that jumps out simply is the fact as we you know as we've gone through these first couple albums um, is that when you think of Petty's greatest hits you know and 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 the ones that are just sort of timeless and uh, you know that you sort of can't imagine listening to the radio without hearing these songs there, there's at least one of those on every album mm-hmm. right he's always he's always got something. So we have to go now to Southern Accents, and this is the tough one. Um, uh, I'm going to just stay right now. I consider this album to be a bit of a failure. Um, it's an album that has two really, really famous and well-loved songs, and, of course, that's Don't Come Around Here No More, which is the most uncharacteristic Tom Petty song of them all, written with Dave Stewart of the Arrhythmics. Uh, but the story, actually, is, first of all, let's just say Long After Dark was 1982. Yep. They didn't release their next album until three years later, 1985. Tom Petty, you always like to take a little time between records, but this is something unprecedented, and, and, and it was a pretty good sign that something was seriously amiss, and it was. I think there were there were drug problems with the band, probably you know the the, the big white snow of California, if you know what I mean, <laughs> was was a problem with the band, but also creative issues in that Petty really wanted to like branch out, do something different kind of, you know, spread his wings. He wanted to do sort of a southern concept album about what it's like to come from, you know, Gainesville, Florida, which is near the Redneck Riviera. Um, but he didn't really have any sense of direction and how to produce it. He was having a lot of fights with his bandmates. Finally, he brought in Dave Stewart to help him do the album, and they ended up coming with a lot of wacky stuff that wasn't even at all related to the concept, but it was just so good that they had to throw it on the album. Don't come around here no more. It was very late in the sessions when that thing came around, but how are you going to exclude it? It's obviously the most famous song on the record, but it has nothing to do with, like, you know, being a Southerner. No, it's <laughs> not. The other really great song on this record is Rebels, um, yes, which is the yes. first song on the record. And it's the one where Tom Petty ended up breaking his hand 
you know, which probably just goes to show. I always feel like that story is like, you know, a bit bit massaged. There must be something else involved there. I'm assuming drugs. But he apparently got so frustrated with like how his inability for the band to bring that song off in the studio or mix it correctly that he yeah. he punched through a wall and he shattered his left hand entirely. You know, to the point where you know, right up until the day he died, he had to have pins like yep. you know, like 50 pins holding his left hand together. Um, because he was incapable of controlling his rage, uh, that to me says cocaine. If you're going to be, I'm going to be honest. But uh, well, he admitted it. He, he said it. Yeah, he, was, he, uh, yeah. he said he was so I high mean, on drugs, he was just so ticked off they couldn't get a good arrangement on it. But it was definitely drug involved. The album shows all of those scars. There are stuff here. There's experiments with like horns that I don't think quite work. Uh, there's experiments with like good time throwaway stuff. There's they left a lot of really good songs off of the album. They turned them into B-sides and outtakes. This is the first time I think of a Tom Petty album as not really living up to the billing. And it's interesting that this should be the case because this is the one where they, he really was ambitious. Mm-hmm. But even with that all said, there's, those two songs are two of Tom Petty's most beloved songs, and they're as good yeah. as anything he ever did. Yeah, and I, I think there's a couple things to say about this album. First of all, I'm going to disagree a little. I'm going to disagree with a couple things here. Um, and you know, my point before about Full Moon Fever being a perfect album, and, and this is obviously not a perfect album. This is an uneven album, but sometimes the uneven albums are very good. Um, I'm going to disagree with the idea that Don't Come Around Here No More has nothing to do with being Southern. Actually, I think if you sit down and you work out the lyrics. Uh, boy, does it ever sound, uh, it ever have that attitude. It's really just the, uh, you know, the music and the sitars and all that stuff that, that sounds so out of place next to things like Rebels and Southern Accents and, uh, and, 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 and Spike, uh, you know, the very, um, the very more Southern songs on here. In a sense, you know, one of the things about Petty is that, um, and, and and you see that you know Petty was never a guy who was willing to be antisocial towards his fans. He was always very grateful to his fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you see Petty's stubborn streak and his fighting streak come out over the years in a bunch of different ways against the labels and the industry. And you get songs like you know the last DJ, uh, and you get you know threats to. Uh, to call his album the 898 album, and you get you get things in the lyrics that kind of make fun of uh, people, you know, in the industry. Um, you get that in uh, Into the Great Wide Open too, but with you know, with the possible exception of Zombie Zoo, which I think Petty didn't like uh, on some level, um, or at least said he regretted putting it on the album wrongly, in my view. <laughs> Petty didn't generally poke fun at the fans the way some other artists have done. Um, and I think that one of the things you see in this album is that, yeah, he, he, he had the pretension to go for, you know, shoot for something that was big and ambitious, and, and he ultimately settled for, well, let's just, you know, let's just end up making a, a record with the songs we like, and we'll make them sound the way that people will like them, uh, and, and, and let's just do that. So in a sense, he, he lowered his ambitions partly because he couldn't accomplish them, but I think partly also because he just had a sense that, uh, you know, this is, we're going to make a good record here, uh, and we're not going to let things, you know, like like insisting on sort of fitting everything into the box of our, our ambitions get in the way of that. Um, you know, the southern side of this, uh, and of course Petty, Petty later uh, repented of, 
um, you know, waving the Confederate flag and everything in the uh, in the Rebels tour as it was sort of part of his uh, his shtick at that point, and, and and later regretted that. But you know, people got to remember, you know, one thing that I think maybe younger fans don't quite get when they hear Tom Petty's from Florida. You tend to think of Florida as this like kind of big, lively, um, you know, booming kind of crazy place. And Petty was born in 1950. Florida was not like that then, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, the political junkies here know they had like like 10 electoral votes at the time, right? It was, it was a much less popular state. You know, it, it, it popular state in the. It, I mean, they didn't open Disney World, which took off the center of the state until 1970 or so. Um, you know, the, the the real Cuban exodus didn't come until after the the, the revolution in '59. Uh, and, you know, the real northern exodus didn't come until air conditioning and, and cheaper airline flights and things that were really just starting to become more, uh, you know, more available by the end of the 50s. So the world that Petty grew up in, in and this is even before you know, before Florida football was big, right? So the world that Petty grew up in in the 50s and the early 60s in Gainesville, it was sleepy, it was segregated, it was it was really the old kind of backwater south. Um and so what he's he's hooking into here is is really a sense of a South that was kind of already g- gone by 1985. Yeah, and, you know, I just want to mention two quick things for uh, Southern accents. You guys covered it very well. One is, you know, that the story of Don't Come Around Here No More, Dave Stewart from Eurythmics, um, he, he explains he was at a party at Stevie Nicks' house, and um, everyone at some point left to head to a bathroom to indulge in the California snow that Jeff had mentioned earlier, and Dave Stewart fell asleep on Stevie Nicks' bed, woke up, Stevie Nicks was doing her, her gypsy thing in, in these long, flowing, uh, you know, uh, uh, scarves, and, and he said it was very Alice in Wonderland-like, and the, the actual <laughs> phrase itself comes from Stevie Nicks is what she told Joe Walsh, that she had just broken up with Joe Walsh, um, who makes an appearance for another time in Political Beats, and, and told Joe Walsh, don't come around here no more. And apparently that, Dave Stewart claims, is where the uh, the title came from and kind of the concept for that song came from. Which is fair payback because, you know, another one of those fun music factoids, Stevie Nicks took the the title of one of her most famous singles yes. uh, from Tom Petty's wife. Yes. Who she asked Tom, she asked Tom <laughs> Petty's wife, it's like, hey, you know, when did you guys meet? You guys have been married for a while. And she said, yeah, well, you know, it was just, you know, at the age of 17. And Stevie Nicks, presumably high on, California snow misheard her and thought that she had said edge of 17 and she actually <laughs> said hey that's a great phrase do you mind if I use that song to make a song out of it which is exactly what she did and yep. you know thus flies the white winged dove uh, and the other quick note uh, there's a song on southern accents called it ain't nothing to me which I think is one of the lower quality petty songs uh, and it reminds me a lot of I don't know if you guys know uh, too much blood from the Rolling Stones off of undercover Oh, yeah. And I don't mean that as a compliment, that it reminds me of no. too much blood. But that has that same kind of feel with these weird horn stabs and kind of... Mm-hmm. Uh, d- I, I don't like it. That's um, why I don't, and, I don't and, like the tour either. Both... They, they did the live album uh, right after this, The Pack of the Plantation. Right. You know, there's not really much to say about it, but I think one of the reasons I don't much care for it is most of the songs come from that, that Southern Accents tour where they have the horn section there. And I just got to say, you know, the, the, the Heartbreakers are not a band that needed to be augmented <laughs> by a horn section. Some bands do fine with that. Van Morrison, you put a horn section in front of that band, he's, he's great. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers did not need horns, and it just doesn't play well on that album. 
they do that song actually live, and it's just as boring live as it was on the album. And uh, I think that's one of the – and also I don't like the way it's mixed. It's one of the reasons why that record is such a poor live document of how great Petty could be live, whereas the live anthology, which Dan's already talked about, is so amazing. It's very telling. Not a single song comes from the 1985 tour on the live anthology, not one. Yeah, and and uh, and I agree. You know, I, I boy, I love horn sections. I, I I think they're a huge thing for a lot of bands, but but Petty's definitely not not the band that that needed or fit with that. And it, it ain't nothing to me. And Spike are both uh, on the live anthology, and they're both excellent. Uh, and and Petty's very tongue in cheek uh, narration and uh, uh, in Spike is is. You know, it's always amusing, and one of the great things about Petty's speaking voice is that he always there was always a smirk in it. Uh, you know, even if you couldn't see him, you could you could tell he always sounded like he was just about to break into a yeah. into a smile, but wasn't quite there yet. Uh, so, let me up. I've had enough. Is next, and boy, if a uh, album title ever actually uh, aptly described the condition of a band and a person, it seemed would, this would be it. Uh, yep. They spent 86 touring with Bob Dylan. They opened for him, then there was backing band. That would inform a lot of what he would do on the, on the next album, Full Moon Fever, I think, with, with Jeff Lynne. But uh, this is just before the album was released, a month before Petty's house would burn down and arson. Uh, the, the culprit still at large. No one knows who burned down Tom Petty's house. That happened just after the band or the album was released. There were fights that kind of lingered from Southern accents as to what the sound would be like and how... The, the, the album would be put together. Uh, Jammin' Me is the only tune that people really would know from this album, but it didn't even make his greatest hits in 93. They didn't put it on. It's a Bob Dylan co-write, though you couldn't really tell it. Bob Dylan wrote the part about Eddie Murphy, and I guess Petty is upset because Eddie Murphy doesn't like it, and Petty's got to say, I didn't write that. Bob Dylan wrote that part. Um, <laughs> there's some half ideas and, and some decent fragments around this album, but it, it's a band that's really almost collapsing under the weight of everything they've been through the past, what, four or five years. And you can hear it. You can hear it all over this album. Yeah, it's his weakest album by far. And it's obviously no surprise that after this, uh, Petty decided to, you know, take a holiday from the Heartbreakers, go off and do the solo stuff, work with Jeff Lynne, which became not only Full Moon Fever, but it also became the Traveling Wilburys. It became the um, uh, the Roy Orbison collaboration on uh, his uh, Mystery Girl album. Mm-hmm. Jammin' Me is, a, is an okay song. I, uh, I I think the title track is pretty good for uh, yeah, know, kind of it a is. live raver. Yep. a lot else on here that's really good and there's some really kind of it's the first time that you know even on southern accents i say that like, well the horns yeah i don't know if it's a great fit for for petty and all that but uh it, it's still okay it still sounds recognizably at tom petty this is the only real album where you get some of these 80s production ticks <clears throat> like the sequencers and sort of the big kind of boomy drum sound which is ironic because they actually try to record it to get a kind of a live feel but it sounds more quote-unquote 80s than any Tom Petty album ever would, and that is not 
to its benefit. It's weakest one that he ever did, and it's one of the only ones that I would actually say, like, yeah, you don't need to get this one. He, all the other ones he did, I would say, I would really make a case for literally every other album, including Southern Accents. I I can't make a case for letting me up. I've had enough. It's the only <laughs> one I can honestly say that about. And and even the cover art is totally generic 80s. No <laughs> idea which band this is. Yeah, right. A portion of everyone's face slammed together is the uh, is the cover from Let Me Up. Yeah, yeah. One of the most overused tropes, even the color scheme <laughs> of that era. Uh, if, if there's a bright spot, it's that it leads to what's next, uh, which is Full Moon Fever and, and a collaboration with Jeff Lynne uh, from ELO. Uh, they would co-write uh, basically all the album. Mike Campbell would be involved in some ways. Uh, I, I want to give the floor to, to, to Dan. I know he loves Full Moon Fever. Lots of people love Full Moon Fever. I want to make two two quick points. One is the songwriting was pouring out of him. It's, you know, it's after the arson. It's kind of a rebirth for, for Petty, and it's it's a more uplifting album than you'd think for a guy that just had his house burned down. But he was so prolific. You know, Mary Jane's Last Dance from the Greatest Hits album actually dates back to the Full Moon Fever sessions. There is a just sublime tune on playback called Waiting for Tonight, um, that came from the Full Moon Fever sessions. The Bangles sing backup on it. It's just a wonderful tune. He was writing a ton of great stuff in Full Moon Fever. And one point I want to make about Petty in general with songs from this album is Petty had a way of writing that drew you into the song immediately. Think of all the Tom Petty songs that you know the first two lines to, at least. But the first two lines, obvious, right? Even from this album, you know, Free Fallin', everybody knows the start of Free Fallin'. Running Down a Dream, Was a Beautiful Day, The Sun Beat Down, you know, Breakdown and Refugee, and uh, I Need to Know, even, even the more minor hits, he sucks you in to the story and you are plopped right in the middle of it at the start of the song. And I think that's such an uh, underrated quality of his work is that he's able to bring people in immediately to the story of the song and get them involved in it. And I think that's one of the reasons the songs stand up so well and people remember them so well. And it's in full effect in Full Moon Fever. You're so bad, right? My sister got lucky, married a yuppie, took him for all he was worth. You're right in the middle of the song. And Petty does great, does a great job with that on Full Moon Fever and a ton of his other stuff. But it's a great quality that he has as a songwriter. And uh, Dan, Full Moon Fever, I know you love it. Yeah, and that, and that really is the one of the aspects of Petty that, that why I described him as pop rock uh, and why he was such a, you know, was and is such a radio staple because, of course, that's one of the great features of uh, popularizing your music is, is making it immediately accessible. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of songs with, you know, a six-minute instrumental introduction. Um, there's, not a, there's not a lot of asking you to buy in. You mm-hmm. know, Petty understands that uh, that that he's got to get you in there uh, and keep in uh, the, the highlight, the absolute highlight of this record. And I know full, uh, Free Fallen is actually not one of my favorites. Uh, it's Zombie Zoo, isn't it, man? It's Zombie Zoo. I can <laughs> no, the, the highlight of this Zombie Zoo is a really good song, though. I do, I do <laughs> really love it, and it's 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 snarky uh, and yet a little bit sad. You know, Petty Petty clearly has you know sympathy for the the, the folks out here who are trying to get a hold of something and they don't really know what it is um but the highlight of this is running down a dream which is in my view his best song mm-hmm. uh and also in my view i think if you were making up a list of the great driving songs uh i don't know how this isn't number one i 
And it, it even includes a shout out to one of the other ones that would be very near the top, of course, Del Shannon's Runaway. Yeah. Um, which is a little poignant, too, because, you know, it's hearkening back to the exact same pe- musical period in time, because who was Del Shannon's contemporary but Roy Orbison, who, uh, you know, Petty and the Wilburys are helping to, uh, uh, to revive at this point uh, in his career. Um, but, I mean, running down a dream, it just. Uh, you know, it, it has just such a, a propulsive um, sound to it, and yet without, you know, without being hyperactive about it. Um, and, the, you know, it's such a highlight. Of the, it was always such a highlight of the live show. Uh, if you listen to, the again, the anthology version of that, that really uh, brings up the keyboards. Um, but every single song on this album uh, is so good. And, of course, you have you have Feel a Whole Lot Better, which is, which is petty, uh, uh, doing his full-on birds imitation, um, and uh, uh, you know the others. I mean, "Love Is a Long Road" is a really, really good, mm-hmm. uh, really solid mm-hmm. track, and it, and it just you know he sort of the way Petty draws out, uh, you know, draws out the the, the chorus on that, uh, and we've seen him do that in a couple of the other songs we've talked about, but it you know it it, it pulls you along. Um, and, and you know, and I'll and, and I'll also stick up for some of the the songs on the back end of this. The apartment song is, I think, um, you know, you, you covered yourself so bad already. But the apartment song is one of those like it's just one of those songs. Oh, you always feel like you know this is just this like neat little song. It's short. It's like two and a half minutes. Um, and you know, maybe his nostalgia for living in a little apartment is. Uh, uh, is driven home a little bit after the house fire, but but you know Petty just brings you into this very short couple of strokes into this this little situation of living in an apartment and uh, the feel of it. It's 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 such a classic of simple songwriting. I mean, the funny thing about it is it's actually an outtake from Southern Accents. They recorded it and uh, they left it off the album, and then Petty just decided, hey. You know, when he originally submitted Full Moon Fever to the label, there's like, oh, it's too short. You need more songs on this. And he's like, all right. He went back and he digged that one out of the vaults and he did a re- remake of it. And it is a great song. But my opinion of Full Moon Fever is this. And it, it, I guess it, it, it's a question. <clears throat> is it possible <clears throat> for an album to perish through absorption? <laughs> like, literally for like all of the songs to be so absorbed into classic rock radio and into the fabric of like what rock music means to us and everyday life that it almost ceases to have any meaning uh, you know the, the joke used to be about uh, you know Boston's debut album that you never needed to buy it all you needed to do was right. turn on the radio and drive around in your car and you could get the entire record mm-hmm. uh, over a 24 hour span of time uh, and that's almost the way it feels about about Full Moon Fever. It was obviously, as I said at the beginning, one of the first albums of Petty's that I bought, certainly the one that really got me interested in. But it is one of those records that I have heard so many times. Everybody knows Free Fallen, I Won't Back Down, Love's a Long Road, Running Down a Dream, You're So Bad. <clears throat> know them by memory. And I even know, of course, because I'm a big Birds fan, I feel a whole lot better. I, you know, it's just another one that I've also had memorized since mm-hmm. I was like 17 years old. It's a great record. There is, I, I, I think Zombie Zoo is stupid. <laughs> I know that Dan likes it. I think it, it's, it's kind of moronic. Um, probably shouldn't have been there. 
but there really uh, is nothing that can be said against it. And yet, it doesn't excite me anymore. I, I want to hear every time I hear these songs on the radio, especially "Running Down a Dream," which is, I think, I agree with Dan, the best song on the record. And again, also, I'll point out a Mike Campbell song. Yes. Um, that you know, I will never change the channel when one of these songs comes on. But when I reach for Petty, are those the songs that I reach for at this point? No, and it's not his fault. If anything, it's the fault of the world, which loved it too much <laughs> and has played this album so much, all the hits from this album so much, that it's like I don't need to hear them anymore. I just close my eyes and I call them up in my memory and, oh, there's the song. Every note, every drum lick, every single keyboard line, all of it set to perfect perfect eidetic memory because it's all there you um, close your eyes and you slip away <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it's again it's not a real criticism of full moon fever i don't really think there is a real the only criticism that could conceivably be mounted against full moon fever is that i've never been a huge fan of the whole jeff lynn production ethos um there are a lot of people who love his style I think he's very professional at what he does. He has avoided cliches. So you go back and you listen to his work with like the Traveling Wilburys, George Harrison with the Beatles on Free as a Bird and Real Love and on this and other things. And it doesn't sound like chintzy and dated. Mm -hmm. But there's a slickness to it that I have never been entirely enamored with. It sands away a lot of the raw edges that I think were a really big part of what the Heartbreakers brought to Tom Petty. Um, but this is obviously an album that he absolutely needed to make. And it was an album that made him relevant again, you know, at a time when it seemed like his career was slipping away with these, you know, a really compromised album in Southern Accents and a bad one, honestly, and Let Me Up. Uh, he was back. He was back in full force. And uh, he never really left after this, thankfully. And, and and this is the point, by the way, where I have to ask, Jeff, do you actually have a no stairway song in your uh, no stairway <laughs> sign in your house? You know, I, I, I should, though, because uh, it's basically the way I feel. Uh, you can't play Stairway. Uh, you can play Going to California. That, that's my rule. <laughs> Political Beat, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Dan McLaughlin this week at Baseball Crank on Twitter, contributing columnist at National Review, talking about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And before we get to the next Heartbreakers album, Into the Great Wide Open, um, I want to at least open the floor for comments on the Traveling Wilburys and Tom Petty's friendships with Bob Dylan and George Harrison. Because uh, he was not only was he everywhere with Full Moon Fever, he was everywhere. With, you know, he wrote You Got It, which was the huge Roy Orbison hit off Mystery Girl. He sang Last Night, one of the best Wilbury songs, um, and seemed to just be having fun. I was feeling no pain, feeling good in my brain. I looked in her eyes. I mean, listen, as simple as this, if you don't own Travel in Wilbury's Volume 1, it's you're just missing out on one of the more, more fantastic rock records of the late 80s. It, there's, there's absolutely no flaws on it. It's just a magnificent good time with all these giants getting together and making great music, totally relaxed, no expectations, no hang-ups, uh, and it still works to this day. Again, I give Lynn credit. This album does not sound really dated to me in any mm -hmm. way. Yeah, the Wilburys. It was. It was just such a. It was just such a charming uh, record, and and I wouldn't just say of the the late '80s. I mean, I I really put it up there among the um, 
you hate to hype it in the, because the whole point of it was the no hype. But, you know, I, I really put it up there in the, sort of the canon of albums you just have to own. Um, and, and the fact that it is, that they really worked as a band, it's hard to say what they would have been like uh, if, uh, you know, if Roy had lived and they'd uh, actually uh, toured uh, mm-hmm. or even attempted to tour. Um, but it's just it's just such a fantastic uh uh, fantastic album and 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 really blends all of their styles and I I liked I know not everybody did I like the uh, the second uh, Wilburys album as well uh, and uh, one of the one of the wry little surprises on there is uh, um, I mean I, I like the ridiculousness of the Wilbury twist which I, I know not everybody <laughs> did um, and, and I like you know when 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 Petty uh, tried to do his uh, his kind of Dylan satire with cool dry place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always, I always enjoyed, uh, listening to that. And, I don't like, well, you were saying Dan, sorry, I, I thought you were doing my bad. Uh, no, and, and, but I do think that, uh, you know, it, this is also kind of a, a snapshot of a moment though, in the late eighties when it was kind of the last hurrah, uh, you know, right before the storm, um, before the breakup of the common musical culture that had existed since <clears throat> since the 50s right i mean you have an 88 i mean george mm-hmm. harrison has a has a number one single um you know uh i mean you've got the beach boys had a number one hit in 87 the grateful dead had a song on the chart so it was all, you had all of these kind of you know dinosaurs rod Stewart, Greg Oldman. uh yeah coming back and 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 getting hit joe cocker on the radio <laughs> and but the wilburys project really did revive in a sense um, and I know chronologically, like Cloud Nine for George Harrison came out before the Wilburys, but it really did lead to a renaissance in, in kind of all of their careers. I mean, Roy Orbison got, in a sense, the career send-off he deserved. Um, Dylan's Oh Mercy that came out in 89 was a uh, really a revival, in a sense, of his career. Uh, and, and you see Petty with Full Moon Fever. So I think the, the creative, just the, the sheer having fun in a band, um, I think was good for all of them. I'm not as big a fan of the second Wilburys album as I am of the first one, but I, I have to say I am a big fan of the fact that they titled it Traveling Wilburys Volume 3, <laughs> so as to really like you know mess with people who are like, wait, 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 what happened to the second album? Did I miss something? So you were a no? big fan of Bill no, Cosby's Leonard Part 6, because it messed with people, and yes. they said, what about the first five letters? You know, that, yeah, that's right. One of the greatest <laughs> uh, movies ever made. Uh, <laughs> Famously uh, bad film for those who aren't aware. Famously yes. bad film by a famously bad man. Go go know. Google it, people. Leonard Part Six, uh, into the great wide open. Uh, Full Moon Fever Part Two, we could call it. Uh, Jeff Lynne is back. He's producing. He's co-writing once again a, a lot of these tracks. Uh, a lot of the Heartbreakers played on Full Moon Fever. Not Stan Lynch, the drummer, and that would uh, that would be the end of that because Stan Lynch and 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 Petty had a falling out. Lynch didn't like playing the Full Moon Fever songs on tour, said he felt like a hired gun because he didn't play on the album. He did come back to play on Into the Great Wide Open, but it would be his last. Um, I think Stan Lynch's contributions are, are I don't know if I want to say underrated, but but Lynch was a huge part of the band. Again, early on, his harmony vocals before Howie Epstein got in were, were a big part of what Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were doing. I think he's a great drummer, uh, always in the pocket, great beat. Uh, and provided a good rhythm for for the band through his years. Uh, Into the Great Wide Open, um, you've got uh, a couple of Mike Campbell co-writes that that rock a bit, making some noise, and All or Nothing. Out in the Cold is kind of running down a dream part, too. Um, 
Two Gunslingers is a, is a, is a petty fan favorite. Uh, it's kind of an anti-war song, but two cowboys who uh, decide not to have, uh, 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 not to have a, a gunfight, and uh, they're going to take control of their lives. The crowd is disappointed, but they don't care. Um, it, it's, a, it's a good tune, too. And then learning to fly, Petty was said he got the uh, he he heard a, a pilot talking and, and the song basically wrote himself. Pilot said, you know, how do you learn to fly? You know, coming down's the hard part, and and he put it together. That's total Jeff Lynne production though. All like a, a billion acoustic guitars layered on top of each other with a sweet rhythm or a sweet melody on top um, into the great wide open again. Um, it's kind of you know it's just kind of a continuation of what they were doing last time. Yeah, and learning to fly is clearly also a bit of an attempt to be free fall in part two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I just, I just love the rockers on this album, uh, out in the cold. Um, you know, making some noise is just such a kind of. It, it, it's it captures it's just that that love letter to rock and roll for its own sake, uh, not for being rich and famous, but just making some noise. When I was a young boy. King Highway uh, is really a wonderful song. You know, it's got that that kind of uh, almost an elegy kind of feel to it. Um, but you know, the the, the open road again, uh, beckoning. My problem with Into the Great Wide Open is that it feels like it's still a Tom Petty solo album with Jeff Lynne. Yeah, there's no Only, there's no Benmont on this album. There's there's not a lot, and I miss it. No. Nah. Nah, you know exactly. It feels like a, it feels like Full Moon Fever Part Two, and I think actually Stan Lynch made that comment. I read him somewhere talking about it. He says like, you know, Into the Great Wide Open didn't feel like a real Heartbreakers album. It felt like he was only, you know, bringing us in as a, a sort of a sop to us, like sort of say, hey, I'm sorry, I just had my greatest commercial <laughs> success without you guys. Here, we're gonna go do the Heartbreakers again. Um, it's not to say that a lot of the songs are bad. Uh, it doesn't excite me that much. I think uh, you guys actually just mentioned the four songs that I think are the four best songs, and they're the first four songs on the record. So it's Learning to Fly. It's a bit generic with those bed of acoustic guitars, but it, it carries you along. Again, one of those songs that you just can't deny while it's on the air. King's Highway and Two Gunslingers are both really great album tracks, and I really do like Into the Great Wide Open. I like the snark of that song. I like the, what was it that Dan was talking about, like, you know, the curled lip. You can just, you can hear the sarcasm. And, and there's a little bit on that, on that, you mentioned the, you know, MCA told them to put more tracks on Full Moon Fever. I read they actually rejected it. I mean, they basically said, there's no single on this album, go do something. And you know, that's stupid that, is that? That line, right, first how stupid, and B, that line works into into the great wide open the a and r man said he don't hear a single exactly that's a great song and i think that that is that is the best song on the album by far all or nothing i think is the other one that i do like um but i don't think the rockers on this album work that well i think they're a little bit forced out in the cold is a big rave up um i just doesn't feel like the spirit is there I, I think this is there's a reason this is the end of the road for Stan Lynch. Lynch was always you know the loudmouth member yeah. of the band, um, 
which I kind of like, and I think actually, you know, Petty liked too. Uh, he was, you know, the jackass who would always get into a fight because uh, he was younger than the rest of them. Yep. And this was it. He said he was done. Uh, but what he did do, thank God, is he stayed around long enough for the recording sessions that Tom Petty was forced to do by the record label, the evil record label with their stupid strictures and their stupid rules. Apparently had written into his contract that whenever they released the greatest hits – uh, compilation of Tom Petty's material, which they were now about to go do, that Petty would be required contractually to go record two new songs. And so Tom Petty, uh, with Stan Lynch in the drumming chair for the last time, uh, dashed off two, two pieces of music. You know, when you have these sorts of compilations with new tracks on them, they're always tossed off crap at the end that you always skip over. You want the <laughs> hits. You don't want, you don't want these new songs that are never going to measure up to the classic stuff. Uh, except in this case, because uh, this is the one time in history where that 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 uh, layout actually worked brilliantly. Because what are the two new tracks that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers came up with for 1993's Greatest Hits, which is still one of the most iconic like compilation albums ever released? They're Mary Jane's Last Dance and an incredibly great cover of a 1967 rock single uh, called Something in the Air which is just a perfect example of how this band, you know, whenever you least expected it, could come out with an absolute gem. Everybody knows Mary Jane's Last Dance. Uh, everybody thinks the name of the song is actually Last Dance with Mary Jane. Or Indiana um, Girl. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Everyone knows that song. They think of it the same way they think of Refugee or, uh, you know, Don't Come Around Here No More. People don't realize that it was just like a last-minute bonus thing they had to scratch together because the record label literally was holding a gun to Tom Petty's head saying, do this or else we sue you. <laughs> it's just amazing that he came out with that. Well, I don't know, but I've been told You never slowed down, you never grow old I'm tired of screwing up, I'm tired of going down I'm tired of myself, I'm tired of this town Oh my, my, oh hell yes Honey, put on that party dress Buy me a drink, sing me a song Take me as I come, cause I can't stay long Last dance with Mary Jane One more time to kill the pain And he's happy about it now, I, I heard him uh, say in interviews. He didn't want to do it, but, you know, it all worked out for the best. <laughs> sure did, didn't it? And again, greatest hits, you know, it's it's weird to talk about compilation albums in the context of an album act, but... Boy, I mean, talk about a record that cemented Petty's legend and really kind of introduced him. I was just about to begin high school in 1993. Every single human being I knew owned that record. Mm -hmm. They got it from like Columbia House. They bought it. They knew all the songs. It was just a given. Whether you were old, you were young, everybody liked Tom Petty. Everybody loved that video with Kim Basinger as a corpse that Tom Petty abducts from the morgue. <laughs> That's a creepy video. Um, but yeah, well, at least he didn't eat her at the end, like in the, <laughs> the old video. Yeah, it really is had... one of the. It really is one of the last of those um, greatest hits albums that just everybody owned. Mm -hmm. You know, and certainly when I, you know, when I was in high school and college, there was just a list of those. You know, you think of the Eagles' two greatest hits albums. Yeah. Uh, which boy, nobody under fifty knows any Eagles songs that aren't on those. Um, you know, everybody well, had. We do because we did an episode on just a few weeks yeah. ago, my friend. <laughs> Well, and, you know, and everybody had, I mean, there were certain other ones, you know, the Stones, Hot Rocks, everybody had the Billy Joel uh, greatest hits, everybody had... Uh, uh, Chronicle it, by CCR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. But but, but this, this one was one that everybody had to have, and, 
you know, when you listen to it all in one place, it really, uh, really brought home, I think, to people quite how many hits he had. Political Beats, presentation of National Review, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Dan McLaughlin with us this week talking Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Remember, subscribe, please. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in. Just uh, search for Political Beats or over at nationalreview.com for new and old episodes. <coughs> Rick Rubin enters the picture, Jeff Lingon, and we get Wildflowers from Tom Petty in 1994, another uh Solo effort, at least in title, although all the Heartbreakers play, uh, except Stan Lynch, who was gone by this point. Uh, and Wildflowers starts with, I think, the prettiest thing that Tom Petty's ever put down. Uh, Wildflowers, the title track. It's a, it's a stripped-down album. Wildflowers is beautiful. It's, it's such a lived-in record. You feel like you've heard it before the first time you hear it. It's comfortable. It's like an old sweater. Uh, I think is, is is how I describe Wildflowers. There are some good tracks on here. Um, uh, you know, You Wreck Me harkens back some years to kind of old Heartbreaker stuff. Good to Be King, which is uh, kind of odd. It was released as a single, but it was. Did well. Uh, to Find a Friend. And A Higher Place. I, I always remember A Higher Place because... Um, you know, there's a trick in the uh, in the advertising industry where you know if you can change a song, a couple of chords of a song, you can kind of use it in commercials, and it sounds like the song, but it's not quite the song. You don't get sued. People must have put together about 18 different versions of a higher place because every time I turn on the TV around that time, there was another you know ad for Levitra or whatever, and the bed, you know, the music and the commercial sounded just like a higher place, and Tom Petty saw nothing out of it because it was just a little ripoff. Um, but these are generally simple songs. That get better each time you hear them. They're comfortable and you and you love them. It's uh, it's wildflowers. It's too long. That's my. It my is too big long. Big complaint. It, it is a sixty-five minute album CD times. I think it right. Blame the CD. Kind of been, yeah, I, CD era is kind of was a pox on musicians. They initially started going hog wild with them, and I think you know some bands have learned restraint. You know, Radiohead, you know, has learned to like put out here's a 35 minute record because that's all we really want to say. I like that approach. This album should have had at least six or of its songs cut off. I quite literally, bad. I quite literally would stop it after uh, House in the Woods and the last two tracks I rarely listen to. Actually, I kind of like crawling back to you, but of course, the, the the big two on this are You Wreck Me, another Mike Campbell song, which is the closest to rock that you're ever going to hear on Wildflowers. Um, and it's good to be king, which I love not only because it's a great song, because it also turns out to be the first song that my wife ever bought. She still remembers <laughs> buying the cassette tape single. Remember when people would actually pay money to buy a single on a cassette? Yes. Boy, those were the days. It's good to be king. It's a great low-key record. Uh, I don't rate it nearly as highly as the one that comes next, though. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, no, and I, I, I mean, I'm not going to add that much to this. I mean, I think uh, You Wreck Me and Wildflowers are the standouts here. I do tend to think that um, going towards something more quiet, uh, you know, and, and doing more acoustic and that sort of thing is often a sign of creative exhaustion. Uh, it's, it's, you yeah. know, art, artists sort of claiming that they're really 
getting into the music when they really just don't have anything new to say. Um, but but Petty does manage to to pull it off. Well, this is the beginning of like he was undergoing a really agonizing divorce. Yeah, I believe he was getting into heroin at this time. So yep. we're kind of getting in briefly. Want to touch on the fact this only came to light. Um, a decade later when Petty allowed uh, the guy who was writing a biography about him to discuss it, uh, he was a heroin addict in the mid to late 90s, um, which is something that shocks everyone, surprised me. I only learned about it pretty recently. And I think it kind of shows up in a lot of the songs. That low-key tone is sort of, yeah, you know, when you're really not feeling the energy like the way you used to feel it, well, what do you do? You break out the acoustic guitars. I think that might be what was motivating some of this, as well as you know, the pain of you know, uh, you know, thirty-year marriage breaking up suddenly. Yeah, and there's you know, there's there's people in the music business, particularly there tends to be a lot of people who get into uh, drugs because they're big into partying and they're big into the scene. And I think reading between the lines, it's certainly how Petty talked about his his issues with heroin i think he was much more the opposite the kind mm -hmm. of guy who you know who's who's high on the music when he's on stage and it's the it's those down times between the tours uh when you're sitting home alone staring at the walls that that got to him and i guess that takes us to what i consider to be there's always he made good music right up until the end of his life but uh, to me this next album is the last great Tom Petty album, the last great Heartbreakers album, and he threw it away as a soundtrack to a very mediocre film called She's the One, written and directed by Ed Burns. Anybody remember Ed Burns? <laughs> he was in Saving Private Ryan. He was in the Brothers McMullen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, She's the One, not a great film. I think Jennifer Aniston was the major star of that She movie. was, yes. Yes, yeah, and, it was uh, a very 90s film and a very Burns. Burns's two <clears throat> big movies were very 90s. Uh, yeah, very 90s stuff. But that album is surprisingly good. It starts with uh, uh, one of, I think, the sort of most underrated songs, of, especially of Petty's late career. It's called Walls. Mm -hmm. um, Grew Up Fast is great. Um, uh, there's a great cover of, we, we were talking with Chris Hayes about Beck uh, a couple weeks ago. There's a cover of Asshole, which is a, a really, an early kind of lo-fi era Beck song. Petty does a pretty good cover of it. And uh, the Angel Dream songs are all excellent yes. as well. There's energy here in a way that I didn't hear on Into the Great Wide Open. Uh, there's a fire that doesn't seem to appear throughout the rest of his later albums. Uh, I think this is the last really top-shelf Tom Petty album. But, I mean, I'm open to being persuaded. Yeah, and, and, and Walls, I mean, the two different versions of Walls are both, you know, and obviously the, the recurrence of the theme with that and the recurrence of the theme with Angel Dream is part of the, the structure of writing a, a film soundtrack. But... Uh, I mean, Walls is definitely the big highlight here, particularly the uh, the original The Wall Circus uh, that was the lead single is, is just such a great song and a song that really grows on you the more times you listen to it. Lindsey Buckingham doing backing vocals on that. And Petty says Johnny Cash gave him that first couplet. Some days are diamonds, some days are rocks. He said Johnny Cash gave that to him. Um, I don't. I think the Beck cover is nice. I think the better cover is the Lucinda Williams cover, uh, Change the Locks. Petty 
and the Heartbreakers cook on that song like they haven't, as Jeff mentioned, in a couple of albums. That is a really great song. Um, the Angel Dream, uh, both of them are very sweet, and Zero from Outer Space is good. But Jeff, I would argue with you, or to you, that you have to go one more album to get the last great Heartbreakers album. Um, no, I, you're an Echo Man. I'm, an, right, I'm an Echo me. Man. Um, Echo was released uh, three years after She's the One, and it is you know, definitely a divorce album. It's mm-hmm. emotionally intense at times, but there are a lot of really excellent tracks on here. Room at the Top. Uh, That's it, the one. Yeah. It's such a open-the-veins kind of number. Petty played it, I think, 20 times on the tour for Echo and then never, ever played it again. He didn't want to hear it. I've heard Petty badmouth Echo just because he doesn't want to listen to what he put out. It was so personal and so emotionally intense. But there's good, good stuff on here. Lonesome Sundown is a great tune. You know, uh, talking about you know how redemption comes to those who wait. Uh, Echo is just seven, uh, seven minutes. I think it might be the longest song Petty ever did. Um, but again, it's an emotional song. It really gets to what Petty's going through at the time, which you don't always get from him. Um, and uh, Counting on You is a nice bluesy number with some Ben Mont fills. Ben Montench comes back in force on Echo. I like what he adds to the album quite a bit. There's some rock, uh, rockin' tunes. Won't Last Long and Billy the Kid are both good. Mike Campbell, his only vocal uh, tune, uh, I Don't Want to Fight. It's not a great song, though. <laughs> and uh, I do want to push for Swingin', which I think is one of the last really great singles from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. This metaphor of marriage as a boxing match, not literal, but figuratively. Um, these sly asides to, you know, like Benny Goodman. It's, 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 it's still a lot of Tom Petty in, in Swingin', which is a great, great tune. give echo another listen um you might come away with a different opinion uh i i think echo is the last really great tom petty and the heartbreakers album i think it's really telling that that you know on the live anthology he only included one single song from that album and it's billy the kid it's kind of like one of the the less intense ones in terms of the emotional burden but yeah man at the top uh, room at the top rather uh, that is an amazing song. It is an amazing downer of a song. Uh, and in my opinion, I would say that that's his last truly, you know, epic number, truly great number. Although, again, I also could single out some stuff on Highway Companion coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that is a dark, dark record. It's just a little bit too depressing for me, though. But I'm going to give it another shot now. Yeah, and I'm going to admit, I'm, I'm going to take a mulligan on this one. And really, <laughs> you know, you, you have different points in your life. When you listen to things, and you know, as a general rule, my my kind of blackout period uh, for music is is that decade from '97 when we started having kids mm-hmm. to 2007 when I got an iPod for the first time. Uh, and I certainly listen to some of the things, and you know, even some of the we'll talk about some of the petty albums that come after that. But um, this one, I basically sort of whiffed on at the time it came out, and haven't really gone back to very much since. There was, there was more to come from Tom Petty. 
uh, and the Heartbreakers. One more solo album, too. And I, I just kind of grouped these together because, like Dan, sometimes you unplug a bit. And Echo was the last... Pet- I, I did listen to Last DJ once or twice, and I, I just quite honestly didn't dig it. I, I didn't Too get whiny, into huh? Yeah. Old I Man agree. Yells at Clouds, right? Uh, yeah, old, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Old Man Yells at Clouds. I'm going to use that in my show right up, too, by the way. <laughs> Highway Companion is actually very good. I, uh, um, it's a Tom Petty solo album, again, with a lot of heartbreakers in there. Saving Grace is a good driving song. It's like running down a dream. Square One is the second track on the album. It's kind of like a post-rehab, uh, post-heroin, uh, kicking the habit kind of refresh of life uh, told through Tom Petty's eyes. And you got Mojo and Hypnotic Eye. Uh, it's kind of opened the floor for thoughts. It's really the last decade of his of his recorded work or so, those those four albums. Yeah, Last DJ, I mean, I really love Last DJ, the uh, the track. Um you know, and 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 some of the other stuff on that record, "Have Love Will Travel," I think is is in a lot of ways, uh, and yet again, the live version of that is is fantastic. Um, you know, a song that really kind of where he really kind of gets into his uh, his love for the music. Um, I would stand up for "Big Weekend" uh, on the Highway Companion, um, and I really, in a very big way, got into Mojo. <laughs> um, you know, that was an that was an album that. Petty and Petty recorded that. You know, you could you can really hear the experience of the band. I mean, they recorded that live in the studio, and there's just a lot of great stuff. It was really kind of getting back to his rock and roll roots. Um, you know, they, they sort of teased the album with "First Flash of Freedom," which is a good song. But uh, I mean, I think some of the best tracks on there, um, things like uh, "Running Man's Bible" and "High in the Morning." It's just it's it's really a fantastic album. Well, it hurts in my heart to see you young. particularly coming on the heels of the live anthology that that gave you a sense looking back over everything that he'd done uh you know and here's here's an album that that showed petty and the heartbreakers still having the ability to rock and not fall into the trap of some aging rockers of just saying you know what i'm just going to sit on a stool with an acoustic guitar and strum uh you know we're going to we're going to take it and we're going to kick it uh and that continues with hypnotic eye you hear some, some there's some wonderful things on their fault lines uh, American Dream Plan B. So I really, really like the last two Petty albums. I would, I would stand them up uh, very high in his in his catalog. I think the last two Petty albums are actually uh, pretty good. I don't feel like they have the energy. I feel like you know, I it, it, he he's he's getting a little more pessimistic, a little more introverted, you know, involuted perhaps. I think he's always had a very depressive tone to a lot of his music that has gotten louder and louder, especially since the last DJ. The last DJ is that's the song, as Dan said, is a good song. It's a pretty good song. It's also a really great live song. There's a really good version of it on the anthology. But um, I'm just, the rest of that record is, uh, sets my teeth on edge because it's just <laughs> so like uh, over the toply bitter. It's like, it's it's the MCA lawsuit set to music uh, 20 years later. It seems <laughs> like, well, well, like, why are we doing this, you know? 
And, you know, our DJ is really worth standing up for. Anyways, um, but I think that Hypnotic Eye, I, I, I'm not too familiar with Mojo. I'm going to be honest. I, I, I have not heard it. Uh, I've heard some of the songs, I think, on the radio. But, you know, it just kind of passed me by. I think Fault Lines and um, uh, Full Grown Boy are the two ones from Hypnotic Eye that I really like a lot. And, again, it just goes to show that, like, you know, the, you know, the, the rate of release is slowed. You know, the energy kind of tails off, you know, guys is old and obviously seemed to be in some ill health, uh, as we now know, because he just suddenly passed away. But the ability, the consistency, the musical quality never really flagged. Tom Petty really understood how to craft a very catchy rock song or a very interesting folk tune or just basically a three and a half minute song that would hold your attention right from the beginning of his career up until the day he died. And uh, I, I really am, you know, when I went back and I listened to Hypnotic Eye last night just so I could, you know, say, well, you know, here's my opinion on, on the last record that he released, I was surprised. I thought I was going to have to say, oh, this is disappointing. This doesn't really hold up to this great stuff. It's a damn good record. It's not as good as, say, you know, She's the One, which I think is the last truly great Petty album, but it's good. And uh, you met, three and a half minutes, I, I was looking at, uh, I think it's Long After Dark, and the first eight or nine songs on that album are all, all of them are like between 325 and 335. Like, that is exactly the length that Tom Petty wanted really, his songs to it's be. It's a really good length, It's the Scott. perfect it's length. It's a great length for a song. That's right. Uh, all right, uh, we come to the uh, tail end of the uh, podcast here, Political Beat, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Dan McLaughlin. Talking Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, this is the time when we tell you, each of us tell you, which two Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers albums you should own and which five tracks you should hear. If you don't happen to have a local classic rock radio station on, you'll hear, you know, one every 90 minutes or so. We tell you what you really should hear, and we let our guests go first. Dan, take the floor. Uh, well, you know, it's hard, of course. Uh, uh, if you could only own one Tom Petty album, I would say it... Uh, I would cheat and say not the greatest hits, although the greatest hits is really <laughs> cheating, uh, but the live anthology because it covers so much. Um, but clearly, you know, in terms of studio albums, Full Moon Fever has to be at the top of the list. Um, and I, I think I would go with Into the Great Wide Open, if only because hmm. Damn the Torpedoes is the easier choice. But, you know, realistically, if you own the greatest hits album or you own a bunch of petty singles, you kind of have most of what you need from Damn the Torpedoes. Mm -hmm. um, so I would go with, with those two, and, and I guess that, that brands me as a Full Moon Fever era guy all the way. <laughs> and, uh, uh, wait, are we doing, are yeah. we doing songs Five now, songs. or are we all doing albums first? Going with the songs, yes. I mean, you know, I, with Petty, I think you have to go with the, uh, the conventional choices. I think Running Down a Dream, Refugee, The Waiting, American Girl, uh, and Don't Come Around Here No More. Uh, so, um, my album, Damn the Torpedoes, I would say, is one of my, uh, two albums. I think it is the, the best Tom Petty album from front to back, and one of the best rock records of that late 70s era. Um, you're just not, not gonna go wrong front to back, and, 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 and the classics that are on there really are some best work, right? Refugee and Shadow of a Doubt and Don't Do Me Like That. Um, second album I struggled with a bit. There's so many you could pick. I guess, I guess I'll tell you to go, go get Echo, um. Because, again, I, I do think it's the very last essential Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album. If you saw him live, you might not have seen any of those songs being played. Uh, they're a little too personal for, for Tom Petty, as he, as he said down the line. But I do think it's still a great late-era album. 
and does kind of run from front to back the kind of styles that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were about. So I'm going I'm to say go get Echo. For the songs, I, I, I went to ones you might, I, I'm assuming everyone's, you know, sort of through osmosis absorbed the 20 or so Tom Petty songs that are on the radio every day. So I'll give you some other ones to get to. Uh, from the first album, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, The Wild One Forever. Uh, tune about a one-night stand that perhaps could have been more. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great piece of songwriting from the very first album. Shadow of It Out from Damn the Torpedoes. Uh, something big from Hard Promises. We talked about that one a little earlier in the show. I really want you to go listen to Waiting for Tonight, which is only available on the playback uh, box set. It's a Full Moon Fever era song. Uh, it's just a tremendous song. You probably haven't heard it. So go listen to Waiting for Tonight. And I'm going to throw Room at the Top in from uh, from Echo uh, as well. So th- those are my five. Jeff? Well, I mean, uh, Dan kind of kind of uh, preempted me here. I, I said, you know, the cheat answer would be uh, your two albums should be the playback box set and the live anthology box set <laughs> because that gives you everything, basically. Not everything, but it uh, gives you a huge sampling. Uh, just got to say, that live anthology, it's four CD sets, five CDs if you bought it at Best Buy back in the day. It's an amazing live document. The energy is just so high. The selection is really well done. You are not going to get bored of this. You'll see songs from like oh 1980, and you'll see songs from 2007, and you'll think, "Whoa, I guess these 2007 songs aren't as good." No, 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 no. And these guys could bring it all the time, every year, every time they went out. But if I had to say two albums that you should get, um, gosh, it's got to be uh, "Damn the Torpedoes" because it does have all those great songs, and even the ones that you haven't heard are great. And then the other one I would recommend is "Hard Promises." which is, uh, you know, I'm skipping Full Moon Fever and a lot of later hits that people know, but Hard Promises is such a great record. It has only one song that you may be familiar with in The Waiting, and yet everything else on that record is is really worth hearing as well. Um, it's just a fantastic early petty. It's the immediate follow-up to Damn the Torpedoes. Please check it out. Uh, five songs. When the Time Comes, which is off of You're Gonna Get It. It's a classic example of uh, why that album is so good and so underrated in the early petty discography. Hurt is another song off of You're Gonna Get It. Same idea. He was still a little weird. They were doing strange stuff in the studio. These are both great songs. They're the first two songs on that record. Here Comes to My Girl. You have to name at least one greatest hit. And if I had to name Tom Petty's single greatest hit, it's Here Comes My Girl. Everything about that song inspires me. I think it is his greatest achievement. It gets everything right. And, of course, it also is a Mike Campbell uh, melody, and so he deserves a lot of credit for it, too. Rebels, uh, first song off of Southern Accents. The album itself is compromised. There's no compromise whatsoever in that song. And I was going to also say Room at the Top. So you got me there, Scott. Yeah, like they doing those things on TV. I love you. Please love me. I'm not so bad. And I love you so is a very dark song very unhappy song but it's a really good representation of what tom petty brought to his later career and in his quieter modes and there you go our uh look at tom petty and the heartbreakers uh pushed forward for 
awful reasons, which would be Tom Petty's death. But we had the opportunity to go through and talk about what he meant to uh, to us and to the world of rock and roll in general. Dan McLaughlin, at Baseball Crank on Twitter. Find him contributing also at National Review. And, uh, and you might find some baseball thoughts from him on Twitter, too, as the handle indicates. Dan, thanks so much for taking time with us today. Glad to be here. And Jeff, always appreciate your insights. Good to talk a little Tom Petty. Oh, yeah, great, too. I wish we could have done it under happier circumstances. Yes. Uh, remember, Political Beats is a presentation of National Review. You can subscribe to our feed. New episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and at nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts. You'll find all our old episodes there as well. And uh, when you listen, be sure to leave a review as well. Uh, thank you for tuning in. This has been Political Beats. Political Beats.